second to last lesson of Genesis. Alright, Jack called dibs on 50. We won't encroach on that. We will at the end of 49 here. Uh, and a little bit of 50, and then Jack will finish this up next week. And then we'll move on to uh, the shorter passages. Genesis 49. We'll pick up where Cameron left off. Which is Cameron preaching last week. Uh, you know, Jacob blesses his sons. Uh, curses as well a little bit. Their, 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 their anger and their violence. Uh, we'll pick up here. We'll look at kind of Jacob's funeral. Genesis 49, starting at verse 49, says, Then he gave these instructions. I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephraim and Hira, the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre and Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field as a burial place for Ephraim and Hira. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebecca were buried. And there I buried Leah, the field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. Jacob finished giving instructions to his son, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph directed the physicians and the servants' service to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days. But that was the time required for him all. The Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for Tell him, my father made him swear an oath, and said, I am about to die, bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of pain. Now let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he, as he made you swear to you. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him. The dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household, only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Joseph. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor of the time, they Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly, and there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the morning of the threshing floor of Adam, they said, The Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why the place in the Jordan is called Abel Israel. So Jacob's sons did as he commanded them. They carried him to the land of the Canaan and buried him in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field as a burial place in Ephraim and Hittite. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. It's a closing glimpse at a character uh, that is dominated in the second half of Genesis. We'll have a prayer here and we'll dig into it a bit today. You know, Father, we do thank you for you know all that we've learned from, from studying Genesis over the, the last year or so, God. And, you know, we pray as we once again consider Jacob, how he lived, and ultimately here, how he died. Uh, Father, help us to, to, to open up our eyes and to look at his life uh, and see points that are worthy of imitation. Uh, we know that he, like us, it, it, you know, was a very flawed character, God. Uh, but at the same time, there's many things we can believe from, God. We pray that you would us, God, to look at this text. Help us, God, to, to see with clear eyes how we can live. No way to 
sins actually incredibly contrast to a lot of other very major characters in the Old Testament. Right? Joseph, who you know, is a very central uh, character even in this section, his death, his burial is one verse. Even Moses, who's the author of the first five books of the Bible, you, know, you get three verses talking about his death. David, great king, his death is almost like an afterthought, one verse, that's it. But with, with Jacob, we actually get a lot. We get a, you know, a whole section of scripture that's even with us stand in stark contrast to those more modest ones. And you know, as I, as I was studying this out, really that, that structural concept began to bother me. There's a lot. I mean, I don't know, you compare Jacob and Joseph, you think, man, Joseph saved so many people's lives, Jacob's included. And yet, there seems to be greater honor in a sense afforded to Jacob. Even when compares to Moses, you think, how, how could that be? But again, there's something about Jacob that I think we're meant to stop and ponder. When you think about it, even the details of this text, it's pretty wild. It's pretty wild with what happens and what goes on in this text. Like I said, no burial narrative in the entire Old Testament comes even remotely close what we see unfold here for Jacob. Now look at these things, right, from our text there, especially chapter 50. You know, the 40 days of embalming wasn't like a massively uncommon thing, but embalming, like most things in life, was done according to your financial status. And to get the 40 days, that's kind of like the gold or platinum package. That's as good as it gets. Right? And he got that. He got this entire modification process, you know, which, you know, teams are out today, they probably would have appreciated this. I ran these facts by my kids on the way here, and they already knew them. This is probably a common thing to teach, but you know, they would take out all the internal organs. Those are decomposed passes, they get them out. You know, how do they get the brain out? This is the one that you knew. They break your nose. Put a hook up there, spin it around, and pull it out. In primary schools in Western Australia. You know, you know, the Egyptians would do that. They would remove all the organs, many of which they would put in jars. Those little jars, kind of like preserving strawberries or raspberries, would accompany you into your tomb. That would happen to Jacob. They would have filled and stuffed his body with linen and spices and salt, all trying to preserve uh, and slow the process of decay. I mean, this idea that the Egyptians as a whole, you know, probably, you know, when you have a dictator like Pharaoh, you can't mandate these types of things, but nonetheless, it seems that they helped. You know, 70 days of mourning by all of Egypt. Again, when you think about that, you think, man, that's so pretty incredible. Doing that for Joseph, who was brought into the famine, well, okay, that seems much. But Jacob? I mean, Jacob was just like them. He came, begging for food, sons of sons, begging for provisions. But here we see the Egyptians being a tremendous honor. An honor that is scarily close to the honor that would be afforded to the pharaohs when they pass. 72 days of mourning. What they got? Jacob, seven. And as they depart and go uh, you know, to, to the land of Canaan, you know, three times there in verses 7 to 8 of chapter 50, we're told that with all these groups, right, the, the court officials, the dignitaries, and all of the, 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 the elders, if you will, of Jacob's own household, it's, they all 
putting Jacob's body in that zone to pain. It's a huge company. And it's not just all these dignitaries, all these famous officials, all these people of tremendous power, all of Israel goes. They leave behind only the children, only the flocks, and the herds. They all travel there to the land of Cain together. It gets even like a military uh, accompaniment. And then chariots, the horsemen, they also go. And again, it's a huge, huge scene. And as they arrive on the border of the land of Canaan, they stop and they have seven more, seven days of mourning. It's such a grand spectacle that even the people of Canaan come and they see and they think, Man, what is going on? This must be some huge, important Egyptian person for them to have this solemn scene. Again, that question played me. Why? It's Jacob the deceiver. Right? Why is he given so much honor? What is so special about him? You know, in our lifetime, we've seen a grand funeral. Maybe you're not seeing Hopefully you're not seeing this for the first time. Four billion people around the world watched this funeral. Four billion. The most watched event in history, thanks to TV. How much did they spend? Four billion. <laughs> Four billion. <laughs> they won't tell us, but somewhere between 80 and 20 million pounds. What? As you can see on the, the picture of, uh, of, of the roadside, nearly a million people line the street. Some people waiting 24 hours in a queue to have a glimpse of the queen as she passed. It's pretty remarkable. At her funeral, 2000. Yes, attended. Some hundreds heads of states, presidents, asked and incurred. And you think, okay, she's done a lot. She's been reigning for 70 some odd years. That's kind of like that's kind of like Jacob had a You think, oh, you compare him and a queen from a modern, you know, mindset or perspective, you think, why? Why such why such honor for a man that in the eyes of the world on paper would seem insignificant? Something about him that I think God wants us to pause and consider once more. You know, when I thought about Jacob and, and consider his life, and you know, if you're writing a eulogy for Jacob, you know, I would think, you know, kind of these three things have dominated him. Jacob had this faithful, hopeful outlook. On life. There's something about his faith that was not always clean, it was not always on point, it was many times not on the appearance massively righteous, but he was clinging to faith in the promises that God had made. He had a tremendous hope of what the future would bring. The other thing that I think is a standout thing that we can learn from Jacob is this love that he had. I mean, Jacob, at the end of the day, he's a family man. He didn't, he didn't build anything massive. He didn't have some grand military campaigns. What did he do? He had a bunch of kids and produced a lot of children and had great love. Right? So let's look at these two things, right? This faithful hope and this tremendous love to close out the life of Jacob. Amen. 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 Amen.
I've seen this in a couple ways. Uh, two times, in the text camera I read uh, previously, and also in our text today, you get Jacob giving very clear instructions, right? And like Cameron said last week, death has a way of bringing tremendous clarity to, to our lives, the smell and salts for our soul, to enable us to see what actually really matters. And what's interesting is when Jacob, he is dead set, do not bury me in Egypt. Two times he's telling his sons, don't bury me. Don't leave my bones here. Take me to the place that I have literally dug for himself. Right? I think there's a point of the request that's hammered into us, you know, two times by, by, by Jacob and once by Joseph, as he tells it to Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh's official demon repeat it back to Joseph again. They're trying to remind us there that what is this that we need to think about when we think about Jacob? He had this unwavering faith in the promises of God to deliver his himself, his offspring, his family. Into the process. You know what I mean? It wasn't always clean last. I mean, Jacob's life, Jacob's faith, uh, you know, uh, was much like our faith. It was tumultuous sometimes. Yeah. Even his relationship with the promised land, in and out, in and out, in and out, even his death, he's trying to get back in. You know, I think that's one of the things I've really appreciated about studying Genesis. Is the Bible does not present these flawless characters. Yeah, yeah. It, doesn't, it doesn't scrub their errors and their folly from the pages. Yeah. It presents them as they were. Yeah. Flawed characters. Which is good. Because what are we? Flawed characters. Yeah. Hopefully that's not news to you. Uh, it is, I don't know. Read, read a little bit more Bible, specifically Romans 1, 2, 3. Let's do that. But there's something about that, that that draws us in. And as we're drawn into Jacob in particular, we see a man who, in regards to his faith, you can summarize it as a battle, as a struggle. I mean, he literally has a wrestling match with the angel of God. God remains him what? Israel, which means wrestling with God, struggling. Of 
we see about him is he perseveres. He clings to God. Even when it's hard, even when it's challenging, even when the, the future is unknown, he still is a man clinging to God. And we as a people, we must learn to follow Israel. Learn to, to face struggles head on, not try to circumvent them, not try to go around them, but to, to face them head on. There's some interesting things even in the, the, the path they take to get to the Canaan, to, to the promised land, is, is, you know, many commentators say, is, is a direct parallel to what Israel as a whole will do when they flee Egypt. So in some sense, the great patriarch Israel is leading the way that Israel will follow in their journey. And when we think about their journey to the promised land, how does that go? It's got many challenges. An entire generation wiped out in the wilderness as the people wrestle with their gods. That's the path for us as well. We've got to learn from Jacob that no matter how difficult the battle is, we cling to God. Amen. And when you think about his faith, and that's that dogged, stubborn, clinging to God type of faith, he also had this aspect of him being incredibly hopeful yes. in that faith. As he says there, and, 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 and you see on the screen, 47, you know, verse 31, you know, over and over he says, there. His point is, not here in Egypt, but there. Not here, but there. Not here, but there. I mean, that is a Christian life, isn't it? We are meant to be a people that our life is not here. It's there. It's not this here, here and now. It's the future that awaits us. That's where we belong. That's where Jacob understood that he belonged. Like so many of the patriarchs before him. And I know we've talked about it countless times. We have Jacob here clinging to hope regarding the promises of God and dying without seeing their the Hebrews, other passages in Romans, continually remind us of that when they consider those stories. That, that it's not just a faith that struggles here and now, though it does, right? It has hardships, it has difficulties. But it's a faith that is so robust, so centered and rooted and established on God, that even without seeing its fulfillment in our lifetime, we still cling to it. We still maintain that trust in God. You know, Paul says of Abraham, you know, turn there to Romans 4. He says of Abraham, he, talking about Abraham, did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Familiar with Romans, Paul's talking about that, that moment in Abraham's life when he had to sacrifice his son. And this idea that Abraham didn't, he didn't wait. Again, in his mind, he was having a hard time seeing how his promises could be fulfilled even in the face of death. But Abraham clung to God. He remained hopeful. But even if he did have to follow through and put him to death, Isaac, God would provide a way for it to work out and for the promises to be true. And when I was thinking about the sex, I mean, that, that's Jacob as well. Jacob has that same perspective. Right? Of, of insisting, the final words to his sons, it's don't leave me here, take me there. That's where I belong. 
That's where my home is. I'm just, I'm just a traveler here. I'm just a visitor here. And that's, you know, that's, that's somewhat understanding, but when you consider how good life was in many ways within the ancient, it's even more possible. I mean, remember when Jacob arrived with all the other uh, members of his family, Pharaoh gives him the best land. I mean, they're under, in some sense, the shield that was protecting Joseph. I mean, in the next 400 years, Israel will flourish there. And yet we see here that very picture. Knowing that though life in Egypt was good, that's not my home. My home is in the promised land. Now that's the same struggle we have in life. Life is good in birth. I love birth. I've been in birth for just finished four years. That's my third Australian city, and hopefully my last, but I know I shouldn't say that, because that would never be our last words. You know? Well, you think, man, life is good in Australia and Japan. And it's very easy for us to get comfortable. To fall into the, just the, the pattern of our world, but in some sense, the same as that, according to just eat, drink, and be merry. Enjoy life. Prosper financially. Make life smooth sailing. But we've got to remember the pattern of Jacob. True life, our life, our home is not here, it's there. It is in the age to come. You know, even as we can, you know, contemplate the of the second sermon, death. I mean, Calvin writes to this, we shall not deem it grievous to leave this failing tavern. When we reflect on the everlasting good, which is prepared for us. The thing in really to Genesis. When Genesis begins with Adam and Eve in the garden, they rebel against God and they're banished from the tree of life and death enters the picture. And as Genesis closes, it's death. But that is the world we live But death is a helpful reminder that I can't talk about. Death can help us attach the tentacles of our heart to the things of here and now and cast that anchor instead in the next. How often do you think about it? How often do you contemplate that glory that will be revealed when Jesus comes? How often do you think about that as your own? How much longing is there in your heart for that time to come? And so often we get, we get trapped here. We gotta remember those words of Jacob, not here, but there. Not here, but there. As if the author was just trying to hammer that point in one more time. Interesting enough, the text never says that Jacob does. Just breathe his last. That's it. That's all we can. It's just a sense of he's not gone. It's not over. The last chapter of his life has not been written. Because there is more beyond the grave. There is more that awaits us. Secondly, and lastly, oh, sorry, not there yet. It's an interesting thing with this faithful hope. Yeah. Jacob has this faithful hope, and on the screen here is a, is a famous image uh, that depicts kind of the, the, the Egyptian way of thinking of the afterlife. Uh, and there, uh, you can see it, you have an vision. Uh, but there are scales. And on one side of the scales is a feather from a creature that represents in many ways the Christian or Jewish thought uh, of that of justice or righteousness. It's 
said he had been declared and vindicated, not guilty, but found to be righteous. Uh, and, and this uh, famous character here uh, is waiting to see whether or not he gets injured. On the other side of the scale, one of those little jars that we were talking about earlier. And within that jar is his heart. And the heart is weighed based on the attitudes that that heart had had during his life and the actions that that heart had produced in its life. And whether that weighs more then the feather determines whether or not you enter the next life or whether you plunge into ceasing to exist. Now again, step back and think, okay, if Jacob didn't have the faith of the patriarchs, if he didn't know the God of Abraham and Isaac, if he didn't have any understanding of any of that, if it was based purely on works, how would Jacob do? Probably not get him. And literally, his name is Deceiver. Battles with his mind. Driven by some shepherd. If it's purely the scales of justice, there is no hope for Jacob. If it's purely the scales of justice, there is no hope for any of us. But if you've ever studied Islam, I mean, this is. This is the same entry point for Islam in the next. Scales of justice, what will all of decide for you? You better do good works so that you can enter the next life. But Buddhism is much the same way. Do better deeds and climb that, that, that hierarchy of reincarnation. But Christianity says, look, that you, you cannot survive. That will not do. That will not get you in. And all those systems, all those perspectives, all those theology, is purely based on something. And it's destined to fail. Now the interesting thing with Jacob's life is Jacob's life is bookmarked by this idea of salvation by grace. I mean, before he was even born, we're told what? Jacob, I love. You saw him. And Paul expounds that in Romans and helps us understand that the purpose of that, what God is saying there, you know, to turn to Romans 9, verse 16, it says, Paul writes, it does not therefore depend on human desire or efforts, but on God's mercy. Before he even drew his first breath, there was a sense that his salvation, his blessing, would not depend on him, but on God. As we were talking about this text on, on staff on Friday, John pointed out a pretty good point that a lot of commentators make as well. They consider all that's being done for Jacob. And then one of those things that people answer with in regards to everything that's happening for Jacob is that it's all based on Joseph. That Egypt's doing everything they're doing really has very little to do with Jacob, but it's all about Joseph. So in his birth, there's a sense. But before he was born, God's divine choice decided to allow you him. And even in his death, his honor of being espoused to him is coming not because of him, but because of somebody else. And that's a reminder of man, how we live, how we flourish, how we, how we move forward as Christians. That it cannot be dependent on ourselves. That it must be like Stephon and Karen shared that we must 
fixing our eyes on Jesus. Looking at what He has endured. Looking at how He has conquered death and given us hope to survive in the next life. Lastly, I'm going to get quicker, I promise. Interesting thing in contrast to the Egyptians and the patriarchs, and specifically Jacob, is how they would go about loading up that cave. Uh, here on the screen is a photo of Tutankhamun's uh, you know, burial chambers, one of the few from the ancient world that hasn't been plundered. Right? And you know, it's a little bit dark, but there's a lot of bleeding in it. And a lot of very valuable things. It's not just his little, you know, preserving jars for his organs. Oh, there's a lot of gold in there. There's a lot of grain. There's a boat. He wants to go fishing. You know, there's lots of, of material possessions because the Egyptians believed that you would need those. And then you could take all that you've amassed in this life and with you to the next life. And, you know, cave robbers have plundered many of these uh, tombs of pharaohs over the years to amass lots of great treasures. Have you ever heard of anyone plundering Jacob or Abraham or Isaac's tomb? No. Why? Because they didn't take anything. They didn't have that materialistic perspective. Right? Even as Jacob is telling his sons, hey, take me to where my father's buried, it's not like take me to where my father's buried because my favorite charity is in there. It's like, it's, it's all about a relationship. Yep. That's where my father is. Not just my father, but my father's wife. Yeah. And not just my father, but my grandfather, but my grandfather's wife. And that's where Leah is. It's about people, not possessions. And this again is in stark contrast to the world that we live. If you think about it, it's in very stark contrast to the world we live. I mean, Jacob was a man who loved his family. Yeah, some of his sons were not Right? And, and even his blessings to those sons, like Pam talked about, sounded a fair bit like cursing. But even the cursing had a purpose, probably to try to help him steer more of the path of repentance. But if you really were to summarize Jacob's life and the greatness that he did, it was he produced a large family. He had a lot of kids, he had a lot of sons. You know, and as his sons rolled away that stone and placed their father in there, what was there was family. There are a few things in life that are eternal. Our relationships, hopefully, are one of them. The Egyptians in our modern world is all about the materialistic things. Jesus appeals to us in the Sermon on the Mount. Hey, don't store up treasure. Don't store up treasure like the world does. Don't invest your life. Don't pour your life into things that are so clearly and obviously temporary. It won't stand the test of time. Moths will take them out. Thieves will steal them. Rust will corrode them. There are greater things to love. There are greater things to connect your heart to. Family, relationships, one of those things. And there's several times he talks about his death, Jacob says, I'm about to be gathered to my people. Family. That's what mattered to Jacob. 
He avoided some of the well-known traps to fall in love with temporary, temporal pleasures. He loved his sons. Yeah, sometimes flawed, sometimes one more than the others, but at least he was striving to put it somewhere that goes beyond the here and the now. This is such an incredibly important thing. There are many things in our day and age that are becoming, uh, you know, things that, that normally were highly esteemed and now they're loathed. Family is one of them. We need to look at the stats around the world. Many countries now have negative birthdays. Many within a generation or two generations, because people no longer form families, are no longer having more than two children, they are not replacing themselves, so their birthdays are negative. Within a generation or two, Japan, Japanese culture, something radical doesn't change, it will be gone. Many Western democracies, same thing. Why? Because hyper-individualism says your life is all about you. And what matters most is you. And if you've had kids, you realize that kids tend to trample on your comforts. They tend to drain your bank account. They tend to soak up your energy like parasitical beings. We need to follow that example. 
Give it tremendous privilege of having family. Not just children of your own, but man, the people in this room. Why? Because the life following God, like this in James, is challenging. It is a struggle. It is a wrestling match at times. And it's a lot more easy to overcome and to persevere when you have people like Seth on the same tree you know, Encouraging you, helping you to hey, stop and think about that choice. What are you really putting first? Eternal or temporary? I mean, we need that from one another. And God has given us that incredible family here in the church. As we close out and we think about this grand spectacle that is Jacob's funeral, I encourage you to think about his faith, his hope, and his love. His life stood in stark contrast to many of the people in the world around him, just like ours will too, if we follow in his footsteps. Amen. Let's have a prayer and we'll stand and sing one last The Father, we thank you so much, you know, for the flawed characters of old. God, we know that we too are flawed. But God, we pray you help us. Help us to be a people that struggle, that wrestle with you, God, in our faith. We know that, that so often it will be as if our circumstances say that we should not have faith. God, help us, like Jacob, to fight, to cling to you, to wrestle with you, God, to persevere with you. God. We pray that, that we can be a hopeful people. We know that our home is not here but there. Not here and now, we are merely pilgrims on a journey traveling home, God. Help us, God, to help one another, on that journey. Help us to value our relationships with you and with one another above anything this world has to offer. Help us to avoid the pitfalls of, of pursuing treasures that won't stand the test of time rather than treasures that will never fade for us or the soul. God, we thank you. We thank you that entry into the next life is not based on ourselves, not the scales of justice being tipped by our deeds, God, because we know we fall short. We thank you that that is because of you, because of your grace and your mercy, that we can have that hope. Help us, God, in that pursuit, pour out grace and mercy on us all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Also, let's all stand and sing. You are holy.